seated. Um, would like you to uh, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the book of Acts. I'd like to read to you just a couple of verses from chapter 1, and then move into chapter 2 and read the first half of this chapter with you. Um, picking up in Acts chapter 1, we'll read together starting in verse 4, um, down to verse 8, and then over into chapter 2. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now over to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled at saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we can hear each in his own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own languages the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall dream, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God through miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. 
Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the, of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Thus, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, even as these words uh, were blessed by your Spirit in that day to cut those who heard to the heart, to compel them to ask the disciples, men and brethren, what shall we do? We pray that we who have come to believe in Christ may understand the mysterious workings of these things and the purpose of such a promise fulfilled, such a mighty spirit poured out, such a commission given, that we too, taking our place, might be the glad recipients of that promise, which was not just to them, but to us, to our children, and to all who were afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. So instruct us in your way. Fulfill your promise, we pray in us, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't know about you, but for many years, I, I was confused in my early Christian life about the Holy Spirit. When I was at high school, for a time anyway, my family went to an independent Pentecostal church where I ran into a variety of things. Um, when I was uh, later after college, I w- was a uh, newly converted man. I went to the Assembly of God Church uh, nearby where we had speaking in tongues with interpretation, that is, thus saith the Lord, and often prophecy every week. I went with my Pentecostal manager later, a very dear friend, to a large meeting where there were a number of very strange things going on, many strange sounds, as well as people drunk in the spirit, so-called on the floor, uh, for hours, wriggling on the floor and experiencing I know not what, including my boss, by the way. Um, And uh, well, after this had gone on for some time, not wanting my boss to drive drunk, as he said he was drunk in the spirits, I, I said, do you, do you want a ride? <laughs> he said, uh, no, I'll be okay, and told me the next morning that he was there drunk in the spirit till 2 a.m., but with no bar tab. I also early on encountered some teaching about the victorious spirit-filled life, which was also very confusing because the more I learned, the more I felt there must be some crisis experience that I had not yet 
um, had in my life, and that there was some kind of surrender, perhaps, that I had not done, but one that would take me to the next level. Nevertheless, walking aisles and praying prayers to enter into this higher, victorious, spirit-filled life never seemed to come to fruition. And perhaps you, like me, have been confused on these matters in the past or the present. Maybe you, like me, have Pentecostal friends, have come across Pentecostal teaching, have been in Pentecostal meetings, or other things that have left you confused or anxious or doubting. Well, as I say on this anniversary of that great Pentecost, Shavuot, I'd like to spend the rest of this day considering what Pentecost was actually all about and what it should still mean for us today. This morning, I'd like to consider the burden of the passage I read, and this evening, I'd like to tell you about what I learned especially about some of the practices and um, phenomena of modern Pentecostalism and help to clear up your charismatic confusion a little bit as I'm still seeking to clear up mine. I hope to show you this evening that every Christian is to be a Pentecostal in the biblical sense, but this morning to show you that every day is to be lived in the light of Pentecost, that what happened on that day was in some ways unusual, but began something that continues every single day in our lives, something extremely important. And the importance of this day for a long time mystified me. What were we supposed to be understanding about Pentecost, and what did it mean for us now? That was really at the heart of my question. And later I read one of the greatest Dutch theologians of any age, Hervin Bovink. He wrote, after the creation and the incarnation, the outpouring of the Spirit of God is the third great work of God. And I pondered that, and I thought, how, how is that? Why can that, why, why can that be? And it is true. Many, great, many people of the world today think that the story of the world is just the story of human achievement, of politics, of scientific advancement, of wars and revolutions, and all the men and women have accomplished, at least you read the history books, and that's what fills them. Accomplishments all, which in fact have left humanity in precisely the same condition we had been in before. Oh no, this world is passing away, and the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The true story of the human race, which will be told and reflected on for the untold ages to come, will be how eternal life sprang up in this world of sin and death, and how God's love and power redeemed a fallen humanity, and how that deliverance came to be known and embraced throughout the nations of the world by untold men and women, boys and girls of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and how that was lived and fought through the ages. The turning point in the great story of the world is this third work. (coughs) When Christ ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit on all flesh from on high. This is the turning point of history and the story of the world, why we are sitting here today. And so I'd like to consider that with you now. Um, Let's think, though, just as we begin, how unlikely a turning point that was, how unusual it was that 
anything happened that day or any day since. How unlikely it was that this particular message which you heard or the fishermen who carried it would have any effect in the world. They were heralds, after all, of a man who had been executed as a common criminal by the Roman governor of Judea, hardly anyone's candidate to be the world's hope. Jesus was as well from Judea, a minor and troublesome province in the Roman Empire, not well liked, almost a tenth of the taxes of the empire of Roman citizens that they had to pay, a tenth of the taxes went to maintain the army that just tried to keep peace in Palestine, however unsuccessfully. Um, in other words, they resented it something like Americans today might resent having to pay for such military operations year after year in the Middle East. And imagine what people would think if we announced the savior of the world had come from Afghanistan. Well, the message of Christ was preposterous by the intellectual and um, civilized standards of the day. Salvation through crucifixion, that Roman means of death, the resurrection of the body, an ethical system that condemns virtually all our standards of morality. Come on! I mean, it would have been hard to have conceived a, a, a less credible, less likely message to be accepted. As Paul himself, it's, it's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's utter foolishness to Greeks, though to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Well, power it did come with, and Christians began then to multiply. But as soon as they did, they had an even heavier burden to bear. Violent opposition, first on the part of the Jews, and then the official persecution of the Roman authorities, outlawed the religion and put a great many to death. So this was the new proposition then, how about becoming a Christian and make yourself a wanted man? Who's going to sign up for that? I mean, the prospect of success seemed to be zero to none. But something unexpected happened. Something that was the most amazing turning point in history. The hope of the world that had been foretold by all the prophets. Just a couple years after what we read, it was said of the Christians, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here too, Acts 17. And that was only the beginning. In 111 AD, the governor of the Roman province of Ponta in Bithynia wrote an anxious letter to the emperor Trajan saying the contagion of this Christian superstition has spread not only to the cities but to the villages and the farms. It's certainly quite clear that the temples have been almost deserted and the established religious rites long neglected. Now, my point to you at the beginning is people should not have believed. People who had no intention of believing in Christ, people who had never heard of Jesus before, who had been even hostile to the Christian message, believed in Christ and couldn't help it. Wealthy, comfortable, sophisticated people in great cities of the world, uh, what the, the governor of Cyprus, primitive locals in Lystra and Derby, and people that were all their lives for generations worshiping idols. They heard the story of Jesus, and though they would have struggled to explain why, they were captivated by it. They simply knew that what they heard must be true. They were sinners, very guilty in the sight of God, and that Jesus was the only one who could make those sinners right. What had happened? What came into the world? Why would such an unlikely band 
with such an unwelcome message, so triumphantly succeed? Well, it was the result of what we read today. And I'll give it to you today in four points, four P's for easy remembering, I hope. The promise, the purpose, the power, and the pattern. The promise, the purpose, the power, and the pattern from the passage. First, the promise. I've already told you just a little about this, and I I wish I could spend a whole sermon on this in some ways, because so many passages in so many ways promised what we read about and its consequences. Jesus had said back in Luke 24, uh, 49, Behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You'd expect him to say the Holy Spirit. You'll notice again and again, the emphasis is the promise. The promise. Acts chapter 1, we read, Wait for the promise of the Father. Chapter 2, Being exalted to the right hand of God, He poured out, sorry, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out what you now see and hear. And Peter says this promise is not just for them. It's for us, verse 38. The, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Did you know that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit had been so long, so eagerly expected and awaited? In the days of old, what had been promised? Well, I gave you the sketch of it before. The Holy Spirit was going to come in great power and Presence throughout the world, raising up not only Israel, but the turning the nations back to God, strengthening his people that they should walk in his ways and bear his fruit. Now, you say, wasn't the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament time as well? Well, of course. Um, We find him on the very first page of the Bible, moving over the deep and raising out of that uh, chaos a, a new creation, a new life. Or you remember um, Moses and his people saying, quote, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? They had the Holy Spirit within them. Paul points out in Romans, uh, what, end of two, uh, the, uh, end of three, rather, there, there, there's never been any other uh, true follower of God except those who have been born of the Spirit whose circumcision of heart was affected by the Spirit of God. Or remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, that teacher of Israel, you must be born again, by which he explained you must be born of the Spirit. And he was confused. He says, hey, aren't you Israel's teacher? Don't you understand these things? I mean, he was using some new terminology. But the concept was all throughout the Old Testament. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, Jesus explains, and you don't know where it comes from and so, where it goes, but so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, sure, he was active in the days of old, and yet there was something new that was coming, something that was so different, well, it was practically like death to life, or like the Spirit not being given to the Spirit being given in biblical language. So great was the change. 
that when God said time and again through his prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel in particular, but also Joel and others, that when the people were restored, he would pour out his spirit upon them and they would be changed. They would no longer go in their own ways and forsake him one generation to the next and neglect his commandments, but they would be a holy people. And not only that, they would bear his testimony to a needy world and they would pour out a spirit upon all flesh and all the nations would be coming to the God of Israel and calling upon his name. That this great event that comes with the coming of Messiah would be the turning point of the world itself. For example, Ezekiel 39, Now therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name, and I will not hide my face anymore from them, but I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Or we read again in the prophets, uh, speaking to the exiled uh, dispersion, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So with these and frankly so many other verses, I'll have some more tonight, the promise, the hope of the world, God's going to come in power by his spirit, restore his people, and convert the nations. Peter very directly connecting this uh, with the prophecy of Joel also. You notice, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Um, this spirit, Jesus had also told his expectant disciples, will come and reveal the truth of Christ and give them the understanding of things not previously clear. Take the things of him and bring it to them. Bear witness to Christ and be to us the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and bear the fruit of godliness in us and convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, in so many ways, the, the very things that have been promised by the prophets, but even in more clarity. And so it is fulfilled. And this is why this is why the repeated emphasis again and again and again on the promise. Isn't this what you look forward to? Isn't this, isn't this joyful that the hope of the world is being fulfilled in your day? Well, we take it for granted. Um, this Pentecost doesn't show up in our systematic theologies or our confession of faith and catechisms. Uh, the theology behind it is there and it's important, but the, the timeline of history isn't appreciated by many Christians as it should be. Uh, the reason that you are here is because Pentecost has come. He has convinced you of sin and righteousness and judgment and brought you to the only Savior bearing witness of Christ. And so it is that the hope of the world has come to fulfillment, this promise fulfilled. But secondly, the purpose. Okay, it's come, but... What practically does that mean? Well, you know that uh, this pouring out happened again and again on various people in the days of old to prepare them for service. Kings and priests had the oil poured over them to anoint them for service, symbolic, symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, by which he were saying, God's going to be with you, and God will give you strength and power to accomplish your work. You're not going forth alone, but God is with you, okay, in the presence of his power. So it was when the first elders of Israel were um, 
consecrated, commissioned, they were anointed, and they prophesied. You remember, when the king was first anointed, Saul, the first king, uh, he was anointed, and he prophesied. And when the apostles are commissioned to go out into the world, they are anointed for their work, and they prophesy, the difference being in other tongues or languages, that the other nations represented there in Jerusalem might hear the works of God in their own tongue in anticipation of now the worldwide fulfillment of the promise. So uh, the pattern continues, and um, you say, well, why was it tongues of fire that lighted upon them? Um, Not exactly explained. Uh, There may be an association with the gift of tongues, same word, But I I do rather like, uh, this is Calvin's explanation. Calvin said the reason the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of tongues was to show that he would be in the mouths of the apostles, that he would give to them what was required to execute their office and their commission in the world. Tongue, uh, then, as in Old English, uh, both represents a language and that little part of your body. So, um, God, as it were, is going to be with you in your words, in your speech, so that you will go and bring my salvation to the ends of the earth, here represented in this motley crew from all the nations. And what, after all, is the point of history? What is the point of the history of salvation, other than what we read in Revelation, that I looked and behold a great multitude that no man could number out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Or to put it to you very plainly, in the words of John Stott, Pentecost was essentially a missionary event. Pentecost was essentially a missionary event. The first time I read that, I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. Because I'd be getting so much other strange teaching. But here it is. It marks the beginning of the gospel's campaign of conquest throughout the world. And this is what Jesus said. You shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Oh, it's a missionary event. Jesus is speaking, of course, to followers who are small and weak, insignificant in the eyes of the world, but he will be with them, and their mouth in particular. The mighty power of God will be with them, and the world will hear them. You know, we're losing confidence these days in this power of the word and spirit that had been so long promised. We're trying to win the world by any other means, it seems, by making it more appealing to modern people, surrendering the word by which the Spirit had uh, uh, not only inspired, but promised then to make it effective. One cartoon I read poked fun at the way that the church is dumbing itself down to attract followers. It showed a billboard in front of a church. It said, The Light Church. 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments. You choose. We have only three spiritual laws and an 800-year millennium. Everything you wanted in a church and less, the light church. Um, You know, we're just losing confidence in the word and the spirit. Um, 
And you say, well, yeah, but people today don't want to hear about Jesus. Well, my friends, think of what I started. You know, they, uh, this is the way it was in the ancient world. They thought all, basically all religions were the same. They had this progressive or regressive point of view. These people had put the Messiah to death, some of them. They, they weren't out there to hear a sermon. But something happened. The Word and the Spirit changed the world. And this was the purpose of Pentecost. Not that this would happen one day with some interesting phenomena. I'll consider more with you tonight. But that this should be the day that begins the new chapter in the history of the world. That's the purpose of Pentecost. Now, I'd like specifically to consider with you the power. The power. Pentecost clearly marked the beginning of a gift of power. Uh, we, we read that uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and, and so forth. Um, and we, we read then that that power, the first effect of that power was to do what? Well, all those disciples who were in the upper room who had been, we read, hiding, right? Well, the door is locked for fear. Suddenly, they left the house. And they went to go declare the mighty works of God in the street. And I think it's highly important, as far as the meaning of Pentecost is concerned, that the first experience of this baptism of the Spirit compelled the disciples to find other people. And compelled those other people to hear them. Though they had no intention to before. Those followers had been hiding for fear behind locked doors. They were changed. They were empowered to be bold and fearless. And we find them in a very different spirit in the chapters that follow. With God in them, suddenly they had the ability to speak in languages from all over the world of the people present in Jerusalem. And they preached that day to 3,000 who gave themselves to Christ. Peter, the one who had been afraid a few weeks earlier, even to own Jesus before a girl, a servant girl. He now is boldly declaring the faith in the streets to the very people that murdered the Lord. It's not this that God's presence had come to dwell in them in a new way, in a new measure. His empowering presence had come to dwell in them in a great new measure and way. And what happened to those hearers? Well, these, these hearers, these people, some of them who had not been there since the previous feast, who had... Last time they were in Jerusalem had called for the Lord's death. Those people who witnessed the miracles of Jesus, uh, they, they knew what Jesus had done. They, they, uh, Jesus' miracles were, well, for the day, world, world famous. They knew there was no natural, no natural explanation. They had heard the words of the Lord. They had seen or heard of his miracles. And they still wouldn't believe in him. They hated him for it. Such was the hardness of the human heart, the stubbornness of the will. But now suddenly, those same people who had so steadfastly refused to believe, who woke up that morning with not a thought that they would by the end of the day be the Lord's followers, became exactly that. Jesus explains the power this way. The wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. 
so is everyone born of the Spirit. There is something very mysterious, yet very undeniable about this power. You can't see its working, but you can see its effect on the speaker and on the hearers. It's preached. That's our part. But verse 47 here says, The Lord added to the church daily, such as we're being saved. Oh, yes, a man preached, other men believed. The power came from on high. God's empowering presence. It was the Lord. And this was not just something that happened one day. This baptism of the Holy Spirit that we read about and was so, such a question in my mind at some point earlier, I was then astonished to read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one Spirit, we were all baptized into Christ. All, all baptized by one Spirit? There's no haves and have-nots in the kingdom of God. There's filled or less filled with the Spirit, it's true, They pray to be filled. I'll cover that later. But we have been baptized for the same purpose, with the same power, in order that the same promise may continue to be fulfilled in us and in our day. To us, to our children, to all who are far off, and as many as Lord God shall call, that promise is for you. You remember that Jesus put it this way, rather differently, when he was at the feast. He said that when the Spirit came, then whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, the promise motive, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, Another picture of the salvation of the world with the connection of the water spirit. Um, This Uh, living water, a well-established Old Testament image of salvation that spreads, as it were, in the desert and the dry ground, spreads through the world and brings forth life, that Jesus says, I tell you, every one of you, whoever believes in me, that's you. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, remember the promise, out of his heart will flow rivers, rivers of living water. That you are to become a joyful part of the turning of the tide, of the salvation of the world. This is the power that's for you. Now I come fourthly to the pattern, something that I need to explain a little more. This is not something that was one and done, that happened one day and Pentecost was over. No, what happened that day happened again. And again, and again, it was happening day in, day out. The Lord was adding to the number daily, such as we're being saved. A couple chapters later, there's another, some more preaching. Now 5,000 men believe. And then priests, even the priests become obedient to the faith. Again and again and again, there's repeated fulfillments of such things. Um, And uh, that, that these people that had been baptized with the Holy Spirit, as they all had, as we all have, that something continued to rise in them to speak and something continued to happen to their audience to believe. We read, for instance, in Acts chapter 4, 
that Peter is filled with the Spirit and speaks. That phrase, full of the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit, occurs 15 times in the New Testament, half of them in the book of Acts. And almost in every case, it's linked with speech. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at them and said, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, said, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at them and said, this is the pattern that uh, there's these repeated instances of renewing, or as it's called here, filling. And uh, the filling is sometimes rather dramatic. Uh, When they had prayed in chapter 4, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So this this boldness that's uh, accompanying them too, this power that, that, that enlivens timid, fearful people who are locked in their rooms to go out into the streets and speak that that goes into the hearts of hearers who had no intention of hearing and convicts them and leads them to Christ. This pattern began that Pentecost was not to be one day. It was to be every day. And And that what the Holy Spirit did for these 3,000 so long ago, he's continued doing ever since. Sometimes in greater measure and greater power, sometimes in less, sometimes in revival, sometimes through cold seasons. And we don't understand how that works. I don't know why winters are necessary, but I I know without them, we're not going to have fruit and flowers. That's that's all I know. God has his ways of working. And even in the human life, uh, up and down, the disciples filled, spoke, and, you know, they, 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 they pray in another chapter. They're filled, they're sp- they speak. Okay. Um, this is what God has ordained. That Pentecost should not be a single day, celebrated by some churches once a year. It's to be every day. Every day of the year. And what God did for those 3,000 that long day ago, he has been doing ever since. I, I gave you this bit of history back a year ago, and it's continued to play in my mind, and I thought, let me just give it to you as an illustration again. Some of you haven't heard it anyway. In 1908, there were some missionaries in Manchuria who uh, wrote home about their observations on gospel work, okay? These are, uh, you know, these are conservative uh, Scotch and Irish Presbyterian missionaries, right? Okay. A power has come into the church that we cannot control if we could. Okay, the writing from China. It is a miracle for a stolid, self-righteous Chinese man to go out of his way to confess to sins that no torture could force from him, for a Chinese man to demean himself, to crave weeping the prayers of his fellow believers is beyond all human explanation. Perhaps you will say it's a sort of religious hysteria. So did some of us. But here we are, about 60 Scottish and Irish Presbyterians who have seen it. All shades of temperament. And much as many of us shrank from it at first, everyone who has seen and heard what we have every, last, every day, last week, it is certain that there's only one explanation, that it is God's Holy Spirit manifesting 
himself. Goes on to describe the remarkable, unexpected effects of this work on these people formerly so hard. One clause of the creed that lives before us now in all its inevitable, awful solemnity is, I believe in the Holy Ghost. 1908, China. These Chinese men, to behave such a way, honestly to acknowledge their moral faults, to cry out to God, to one another for forgiveness, was so extraordinary, so unlikely, so culturally uh, unanticipated and unexpected that it required some explanation. And that explanation was the only one that they could give. The same one in Acts 2, that what has happened in greater or smaller measure in 10,000 places and 10,000 times was the same thing. The Spirit of God overthrew in an instant the people's long-nourished self-righteousness, stripped away their self-satisfaction and peace, and revealed to them Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners and the King of kings, and made it luminously clear that there was nothing for them to do except to confess their sins and plead for salvation from the only one who could give it to them and to honor, them, honor him henceforth as the Lord that he is. And so in doing so, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, did his work again. Well, in conclusion, Pentecost obviously did signal a new era in the history of the world, a new epoch, an epoch distinguished by the effusion of spiritual power. You know, when you get married, you uh, make some vows, you exchange rings, and then the minister says at the end, you may kiss the bride. I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. Smith or whatever. That happens once, and it is a profound change of affairs. From that time forward, a couple is married. Something has changed forever, legally, in their relationship, well, till death do they part. It's a one-time event, but it affects every day of their lives together. Now, if that married couple kiss only on their wedding day and never again, there's big troubles coming, right? They're not going to have a good relationship. There needs to be such renewals, refreshments, um, reinvigorations of this love. And so it is that when the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus Christ to people, well, lives change. There is something fundamental that changes when you are baptized by that Spirit into Christ Jesus. When you believe in Him, a reorienting of your loyalty, of your understanding of the purpose that takes place. Those self-satisfied people there at the feast, they, they would have admitted they're not perfect. But they had never imagined that they were in desperate need of salvation. A salvation that only God himself was powerful enough to provide. But there they are at the feast, you know, doing their religious duties. And they learned that God was not pleased with them and they had to flee to Jesus. And their lives so remarkably, so beautifully changed as we read at the end of the chapter. What a change it makes. And yet, there needs to be renewal. Refreshment. In biblical language, a filling of the Spirit. John Owen wrote that praying for the Holy Spirit is the most important work faith does. That if this purpose and this power and this promise is for us, 
and is for now, and is for this world at this time, then we too need to return to such things and seek them earnestly. God has made you and me a real part of bringing joy to this world. And the message of this chapter is you, yes, you, scared, hiding away individual, that you can be empowered to change the world, to be an effective witness, to be the founders of this new kingdom and the builders of the new world. Will you give yourself to seek and be filled with this Holy Spirit, that this pattern may continue in your lives. For as you and I are filled, you and I will speak. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, such conviction must be divine, so strong that it controls our life, so certain that what Jesus has said in his word is true, that what he has done on the cross and, and in rising from the dead is precisely what had to be done to save people such as us. That every promise that he has made to those who trust in him must be fulfilled. When we think about what has happened to us, a joy inexpressible and full of glory, we, we scarcely know what has happened to us ourselves. But you have given us new birth into a living hope, through this mighty resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And having not seen him, yet we love him. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And so we return on this day to remember the source of such joy, the power behind such confidence. And pray, O Father, confessing we have grieved your spirit, in countless ways, and so often chiefly by just neglecting him. We pray, as the church prayed of old, two chapters ahead, that you would likewise give us boldness and power and fill us from on high, that by the Holy Spirit we may continue to live as becomes the followers of Christ. And it's in him we pray.